it's a rather surprising thing, perhaps, that when you look at studies on the theology of St. Paul, you almost never find a section on the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection you find, but it's the general resurrection in a section on St. Paul's eschatology, what he says about the end of time and the ultimate destiny of human beings. Jesus, obviously, you find in the Christology section, and that would be a big one. But it will tend to cover the question of whether St. Paul thought Jesus was pre-existent, which he did, what it meant for St. Paul to call Jesus the Messiah or Christ, and what was the theological significance of Jesus's crucifixion. Very often at that point, the Christology is done. Now, there's a perfectly good reason for this. Actually, two related good reasons. The first is that St. Paul doesn't actually talk a great deal about Jesus's resurrection as such. But the other is that absolutely everything in his theology is centred on the fact of Jesus having been raised from the dead. Imagine he was writing about the solar system and in each of his letters he's dealing with the question of the orbit of one or other of the planets. He might not ever say that much about the sun, but it is quite literally at the centre of everything. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus. Happily for us, while St Paul never deals in an extended way with the question of what Jesus's resurrection was like, how it happened and so on, in the way that he gives extended treatment to, for example, the nature of the church or the Eucharist, the question of God's righteousness and our justification, or whether or not Christians need to get circumcised, they don't. As I say, happily for us, he does give us some clues, and I want to explore one or two of these in this brief talk. Let's start by recognising that the fact that Jesus, having been crucified on a Friday just outside Jerusalem, was nevertheless on the Sunday alive, and not only alive but glorified, raised to the right hand of God, as Paul says in the letter to the Romans. This fact is at the centre not just of Paul's theology, but of his life. For Paul, it's a fact not just about Jesus, but about himself because he tells us several times that he saw the risen Christ. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, he asks rhetorically in 1 Corinthians, giving this as the basis for his authority as an apostle. In the same letter, he lists himself as the last of those who had an encounter with the risen Christ. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This expression, as to one untimely born, the Greek word is actually rather grotesque because it means the result of a miscarriage or an abortion. And there's a lot of scholarly debate as to what exactly to make of it. Well, whatever else it means, it's clear that St Paul, recognising that there's something untimely about his encounter with the risen Christ, which was, after all, a rather long time after the ascension, he nevertheless wants to insist that it was the same kind of encounter as the other apostles had. He saw Jesus, not in a mystical vision or a dream. It wasn't some sort of inner spiritual experience. 
In the same way that the apostles in the upper room saw Jesus, watched him eat fish, touched him to check that he wasn't a ghost, in the same way Paul saw him. And we discover in the letter to the Galatians that when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, as he puts it, this encounter turned his world upside down. From being a persecutor of the church, he became its most zealous advocate and apostle. But we need to recognise that there was both radical change and yet also continuity in how Paul saw the world. He writes to the Galatians about his life and beliefs as Saul the Pharisee, zealous for the law, which set apart the people of Israel as the chosen covenant people of God, the people that God would vindicate against their enemies on the last day, when the Gentiles would be brought to see that the God of Israel was indeed the one true God and Lord of the universe, and that the Lord would raise up the dead, at least the righteous dead of the Jewish people, to enjoy forever the life of the age to come. That age would be heralded by God's victory over his enemies, a victory achieved by one anointed by God as his chosen servant, his Messiah, the Christ, who would reign forever on God's behalf over all creation. That's what Saul the Pharisee believed, and he didn't stop believing it when he met Jesus. He believed it all the more because he realised that it had all actually already happened. How quickly Paul realised all the implications of his meeting with Jesus, we don't know. Did it take him a few weeks, a few months, a few years, or just a few seconds? But by the time he started writing his letters, he knew that if Jesus, whom he'd thought to be a false and failed Messiah, was in fact living and exalted, then three things must follow. First, Jesus must indeed be the Messiah, the Son of God. In Romans, he refers to Jesus being designated Son of God in power by the resurrection. Most scholars now realise, as the church has always recognised, that this doesn't mean Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection, but rather that his rising from the dead was the proof God offered that Jesus had always been his Messiah and that he'd now begun to exercise the power, the dominion over the whole of creation that had always been his in virtue of his divine sonship. Secondly, Paul realised that if Jesus had been raised from the dead, then the resurrection for which the people of Israel had been hoping at the end of time had already begun. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who've died. Now here is something truly unexpected, that the Messiah, slain in perfect obedience to the Father's will, should alone be raised in anticipation of the resurrection of all the saints. Unexpected, certainly not explicitly foreseen by any of the prophets. And yet now that St Paul has seen that it's happened, it does make perfect sense. And it makes perfect sense because the third thing Paul realises is that if the resurrection has begun, then the last days are upon us. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. And we are, as he says in 1 Corinthians, the generation upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
The time has come for the gathering in of the Gentiles, which for which Saul, as a Pharisee, had longed, as all of humanity submits in obedience to the God of Israel. That's precisely what's happening in St Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Now when he says to the Galatians that God revealed his son to me, you could also translate that to me as in me or even through me, and all of them are true. On the one hand, Paul's identity as apostle to the Gentiles is legitimated by the resurrection. And on the other hand, the success of his mission his mission is proof of the resurrection, a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his covenant, which is most perfectly manifested in the resurrection. St Paul's always very clear that his mission is not his own work, but that of the Holy Spirit. He is an instrument of that spirit. Indeed, St Paul redefines the Holy Spirit as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. God's spirit is the spirit of the resurrection, the spirit of the risen Christ. And it's that spirit that animates Paul and animates the churches that he establishes among the Gentiles. These churches form part of the body of Christ, the risen body, which is animated by the spirit, so that the church and all the Christians who are members of it become places where the Spirit dwells, temples of the Holy Spirit. All this is to say that while Jesus' resurrection is for the time being a one-off, that doesn't mean that it has no effect on the rest of us. Quite the contrary. St Paul tells the Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. To the Galatians he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This certainly doesn't mean that Paul has lost his individual identity and is being sort of absorbed into Jesus in the way in which one might be assimilated into the Borg. No one could read St Paul's letters and think that he's lost his distinctive personality. Rather, what Paul means is that with the resurrection, a new mode of life, a higher form of existence has begun to be and we can already begin to participate in this new creation, even while still living our apparently ordinary human lives. To be obedient to God, living lives of love and service, joy and thanksgiving, and self-sacrifice even unto death, in short, living lives conformed to Christ, is to be given a share in the resurrection of Jesus, a share in his spirit, it means that Paul can say to us, as he said to the Philippians, our commonwealth is in heaven. We ourselves are a new creation of heavenly origin. So it's important to notice that the resurrection of Jesus is more even than a proof that this new creation is already happening. It is simultaneously a proof of that because it's the first effect of it, and also the cause of the new creation. That's what St Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is the nearest he ever comes to a sustained treatment of Jesus's resurrection. Now that chapter is an extremely dense and difficult passage, 
and I'm not even going to try a detailed reading of it now. But I want to draw your attention to a couple of things about it. First of all, as I mentioned, Paul argues that Jesus, because he's been raised from the dead as the first fruits of the new creation, is able to grant a share in that same life to all of humanity. If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus, the risen Lord, now enjoys and exercises a dominion over all creation, which was foreshadowed by the dominion given to Adam, given to him, but then thrown away in disobedience. But the new Adam, perfectly obedient, has been highly exalted and given the name which is above every name, to which every knee should bend in heaven and on earth. The power of Christ as risen Lord extends over the whole of the earth and the whole of heaven, the entire cosmos. And because the resurrection of Christ originates in heaven, then Christ, our fellow human being, is able to communicate that same heavenly life to us. But secondly, that heavenly life is not something that destroys the earthly, but rather something that completes and perfects it. If that last sentence sounds a bit like St Thomas Aquinas, it's because St Thomas is an outstanding teacher and interpreter of St Paul. It's true that in this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul does make a very strong contrast between the things of heaven and the things of earth, between the spiritual and the fleshly. He says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. But we need to remember that Paul is perfectly clear about Jesus being a man of dust like us, born of a woman born under the law. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians to say, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Or, as he puts it in 2 Corinthians, while we are still in this tent, that is, our mortal body, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Just as there's both continuity and discontinuity in what Paul believes after he's met the risen Jesus, so there is, you see, both continuity and discontinuity in Jesus before and after his resurrection. I think the crucial metaphor that Paul uses to help us understand this is that of the seed. You do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, he says. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, 
I'm afraid that that last sentence was badly translated. It's the best translation, but it's still bad. The trouble is, there isn't really a good one. The word translated there, physical, is psychikon, which means having a psuche, a psyche, a natural soul, or a natural life. It absolutely doesn't mean physical as opposed to immaterial. And you can tell that by the fact that Paul talks about a spiritual body as opposed to a psychic body. The body of Jesus after the resurrection is precisely the body of Jesus. And about that, Paul is perfectly clear. Whatever some people may think about what happened on Easter Day, for St Paul, the resurrection is not something that happened in the imagination of the apostles. It's not a burgeoning sense of God's love and power. It's not a conv conviction that Jesus is somehow still alive in the eyes of God. No, it's that the body of Jesus, which was dead, is now alive and more than alive. Resurrection for St Paul is the transformation of the same body just as an acorn transforms into a tree. We don't look at the seed lying rotting in the earth and imagine a tree, and neither do we dig up the tree to find the acorn buried underneath it. The one is transformed into the other. St Paul believes and clearly teaches that Jesus now enjoys a bodily life, not a life less bodily than ours, but more bodily precisely because his body is animated by the Spirit of God. It's a body that's part of the new creation that God has launched by the resurrection of his Son, the Messiah. And being more bodily means that, just as we are present to others in our bodies, so Jesus can be more present in the world. St Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, but then his eyes were opened to find the risen Christ was present elsewhere too, present in himself in St Paul when he was obedient to the Father, present in the Eucharist, of course, present as his body, the Church, which is itself the seed of the kingdom, the sign and promise of the new heavens and the new earth of the new creation launched by the resurrection of Jesus Christ.